going to continue our study in Judges. We're going to be in chapter 3, picking up with verse 8 this morning. And our title this morning is Willing Vessels. Willing Vessels. Father, we ask that you speak to us this morning, that you take us, Lord, deep into your word. Let us dive in with open hearts and open minds to hear what you have to say. For Lord, the scripture is not just to make us feel good, it's to make us see ourselves for who we are. It, it is there for correction as well as reproof and, and change, Lord. You want us to change to be more like you and your word and the spirit work together to bring us from our fleshly nature into the spiritual nature. And we need to feed upon your word. We need to feast upon you and hear what you have to tell us this morning, Lord, so that when we leave today, Lord, that we know that we're making a step toward you not toward our flesh. We want to be away from the flesh. It doesn't lead us anywhere good. But your spirit only leads us where you want us to go. And the word, they work together. And I thank you so much, Lord, for the unity that you're bringing through the word and the spirit that brings unity from to us, to you. Because in the relationship, it is two-sided. You sustain it. You You put it all together. You brought us into... Uh, a redemption Lord but we have to remain focused on you in a relationship we have to say yes Lord when our hearts or our minds or our flesh say I don't want to do it the Lord it's not about us it's about you and so we thank you and we praise you and ask you Lord again to teach us this morning what you have for us to hear in Jesus name amen well in our last study we saw because of Israel's disobedience by not driving out and destroying all the nations that God had commanded them, they began to follow after these nations, gods. They went after the, the pagan gods of these lands. Baal, Asherah, and, and Moloch are the three that we focused on last week. And all three of these gods have been around throughout history. And while they're named, or their names have changed and they're not the same as they used to be, they're around. They're among us through political and social movements in our culture. And while the names have been changed, it's not to protect the innocent, but to deceive them. And that's the whole point. That's what Satan does. He repackages, redistributes, but it's the same lie, the same uh, pagan gods that he's, he's reintroducing over and over. And the sad truth is that these gods have walked in the front door of the church in the United States, and they're not even recognized. Instead of rooting them out, a lot of the churches or called churches have embraced them. And today there's a lot of political, social, and cultural movements that have replaced sound biblical teaching from the pulpits in America. And as I said last week, God takes his covenant seriously. Israel was punished for their disobedience when they broke their covenant with God. And as we'll see this morning, God dealt harshly with them. Today, though we are in a season of grace, it's important for us to understand consequences still remain when sin is in place. And because the church has become complacent and compromised, the nation has become corrupt, abandoning the true God and turning to the pagan gods as Israel did. God's judgment is coming, and I believe we're in the last days, but if he tarries, if he delays the coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ is delayed, 
then the consequences of sin are imminent. It's going to happen. Whether he comes before or after doesn't change the fact that because of the fact that we've turned our back on God, the consequences of that are bringing this country to its knees. And it's happening around us as we see. And it may be possible and it's probable that this country will completely implode and life as we know it has changed forever and is not for the good because of the sin and the consequences that come along with it. As I've said before and will continue to say, it's the message God has given me. We must wake up as the church and get back to our roots in Jesus Christ, returning to our first love. Not that we can be revived, but transformed. Transformation is much more important than revival. We hear about revival. We talk about revival. We pray for revival. We sing about revival. And revival is a good thing when we're being revived back in the Lord. But that's really what we need to think about is I don't want to be revived to what I've been even in the Lord. I want to be continually transformed into what he wants me to be. In other words, if I die and am revived, I come back the same I was. But God doesn't want to leave us where we were. Even in our spiritual state, though we've come so far from where we were when we received him and, and, and he brought us into redemption, it's now time that we say, okay, I want to be closer. <clears throat> I want to get closer to the Lord. I don't want to be away. I don't want to be distant. I don't want to be revived just to what I've had. I don't want to recall the things of the past and say, oh, what, it, what great, how good it was when we first knew the Lord and how good it was. Those were good times, great times, but there's better times to come when you're in Jesus. When you're submitted to him, it's good. And I believe Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, we're not supposed to go look at the old times and say, how the good old days. Now, I remember when, when I was growing up, I heard that all the time. My parents, oh, we had, oh, I wish we could get back to the good old days. Well, I asked them about the good old days. They didn't have indoor plumbing. That's good old days? Well, I will say this. They also didn't have the Internet. <laughs> so that was good old days. They didn't have the twits and the tweeters and, the, and all these others going on. <clears throat> but let me tell you, gossip was still prevalent. Churches were split because of gossip and because of sin, even in the good old days. So we're not to look to our past to try to replicate and get back to where we've been. We're to look to Jesus today so he can be our future tomorrow. We're not to worry about tomorrow, but we're to be focused on Jesus today. And think about that. If you're focused on Jesus today, if you're focused on him this moment, this very day, this very hour, he takes care of tomorrow. Now, we're responsible when we get to tomorrow because tomorrow now becomes today. And what does that mean? It means we're focused on Jesus today. And ultimately, that's all that there is. We can go back to the past. We can remember the good things. And I will tell you, we're not to forget a lot of the past. A lot of people say forgive and forget. That's not necessarily true. You don't forget. When you receive forgiveness, you remember the goodness of God and how he forgave you for the sin of your past. But you don't go back to the past and live in bondage to it. And when you forgive someone else, 
you're now living in that place of forgiveness. You don't have to go back and re-remember the sin that they did to you. You may remember it, but now you've set them free and you've set yourself free because you say, I've forgiven that. I'm not in bondage to unforgiveness anymore. So we remember these things, but we're not called to go back to them. Again, we're called to move forward. We need to be transformed into His image daily. He has something for each one of us every single day. His mercy, His grace. He constantly is pouring into us, and we need to be responsive to that daily. In 2 Corinthians 3, 17-18, says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. But we all, with unveiled face beholding in the mirror the glory of the lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the spirit of the lord we're transformed and it's a daily thing it's a, it's an ongoing thing but he wants us to see him for who he is if we're not looking at jesus for who he is but are looking at a false god or a god that we've created and trying to put jesus's name on it that's not going to transform anything. It's going to keep us in bondage. So what does it mean to look to see Jesus for who it is? It means that we go to his word and we see who Jesus is. He is loving. He is kind. He is uh, giving. He does have the grace. He's given the mercy, but he's also sovereign. He's all-knowing. And he does take his covenant seriously. And it's very easy to take an attribute of God and apply it and build your whole world around that one attribute. Well, God is love. Yes, he is. But if that's all that you see, then you can go around saying, so everybody's going to get to heaven because God is love. And everybody's forgiven just automatically because God is love. That's a false image of God. While he is love, his love is tough sometimes. And his love is also engulfed with all the other attributes. So if you're looking at the situation, you're saying, well, God doesn't bring judgment. You're off base. You're way off base. And on the other hand, if you look at God and say, you're all judgment. Your sovereignty is, is all there is. So that means that you judge and, and, and you're mean and you're an ogre. And there's no room for mercy. And you have people that call themselves Christians that follow that path. They're all unbalanced. So how do we deal with this? How do we come to this place of seeing God for who he is? First and foremost, we have to stay in the word. The word is balanced. The spirit of God confirms the word in us and brings that balance to us so that we can know that, yes, sin brings consequences and those consequences are real. Even as a believer, there are consequences. I know in my own life, I still live today consequences from the past. In my family. They're there. But I don't. I, I have gone and forgiven. And I've repented. But the consequences don't necessarily change. Because when you pour ugliness. Into other people's lives for many years. They get scarred. So how do you deal with that? How do you not walk in, in shame all the time? Because now I've released them. I've gone to them. And now I put them in the hand of Jesus. And I pray for their transformation. And think about it this way. And this doesn't justify anything that we've ever done to anyone or anywhere in our past. But think about it this way. 
God brings us sometimes to that place of brokenness, and sometimes it's all through relationships of others, and we come to that place of brokenness so we can see Jesus face to face. So rather than trying to protect everyone around us, give them to Jesus. Even if we've been involved in the past hurts and fears, release that. You don't have to walk in bondage anymore, and you still have to go, and you have to, when you can, repent and ask for forgiveness, and then let them in Jesus' hands. Because sometimes you're not going to get the result you want right away. But God, I forgave them. How come they're still doing this? How come they're, they're still wounded? Just as you were wounded, it's now in Jesus' hands. And he can begin the transformation when we let go and get out of the way. We can't fix anything that we've messed up. We have to leave it in the hand of Jesus. So this week, we're going to begin our introduction to the judges. Now, our focus is not necessarily going to be who they were. We will talk about that briefly in, in these cases. But we're going to be looking more about their being willing. When they're called and they're appointed, they went. And that's important for us to see. Now, we don't have a lot of the details. I mean, sometimes, you know, the Word doesn't tell us every detail of every story. But what we do see is when God raised up a judge, that judge went forth and did what God called him to do. They were willing vessels. And, of course, in the midst of that, we're going to see the pattern. It's the pattern that's in place before and after each judge. Israel had a pattern, a habitual sin pattern. And they would cry out to God. He would deliver them. And then some period they begin to fade back off. And again, they'd fall back into the same pattern of the pagan gods. And then they would be in bondage again. And then they would cry out and God would deliver them. Now, you want to see mercy. We're looking at mercy in this book. Because every time, it's because they turn their back on God as to why they wound up in the situation they were in. So let's begin this morning, beginning with Judges chapter 3, verse 8. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them, that's an interesting phrase there, he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishatham, king of Mesopotamia, and the children of Israel served Cushan Rishatham eight years. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel, who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest for forty years. Then Othoniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So briefly looking at Othoniel, he was mentioned earlier in chapter 1, Judges 1, 12-13. Then Caleb said, Whoever attacks Kerjath, Sifer, and takes it to him, I will give my daughter Ashkah as wife. And Othiniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So he gave him his daughter Ashkah, his wife. And I'm not sure I'm pronouncing these names right, but y'all get the hint. Outside of this relationship with Caleb being uh, married into the family, Othiniel didn't seem to be anything special. What was appointed, what was anointed about him? Did we see anything that made him stand out? And if you look at all the judges, for the most part, they didn't display anything special outside of the fact that God had raised them up. 
very important. God raised up. They didn't just all of a sudden say, hey, okay, I'm ready. I'm going to be the judge. We saw in David's family when they did that what happened. Each of them, he had several sons. I'm going to be the king. Well, that wasn't God's plan. And they died because they were going against God's plan. The real theme of the judges is not the men and the women who, who God chose, but the fact that even in their rebellion, God showed mercy. That's really the theme of this book. It's God showing mercy in the midst of the sin. There's mercy in judgment. A lot of times we don't see mercy when God brings punishment. But there is mercy even in punishment. Why is that? It's because it brings that point of reflection. It brings us to the place where we say, God, I recognize I'm being punished for my sin. Now, here's the problem that's going on around us in our culture. It's accountability or lack of. There's no, there's no accountability in our culture today. Nobody wants to accept the fact that they are in sin. They want to point the finger at somebody else. It's always somebody else's fault. We see that in marriages. We see that in, in, in people that have, have, have gone out and committed crimes. Well, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. Well, you're the one that had the gun. You're the one that walked in the store. You're the one that robbed them, but it's not your fault. No, it was somebody else. It's because of where I come from. It's because of what I've been through. It's because of this. And personal accountability is taken off the table. But what God does when he brings the punishment and he brings judgment as he puts it right back in the faces of the individual. And they have to come to a point at somewhere and say, this is on me. This is on me. And when we're able to do that, when we're able to accept that things come around a lot of times by our own sin, our own hand, and we say, God, forgive me for my hand and what I've done, that's when the mercy really has begun to take place. Yeah, the judgment may be there. The consequences may be there. And he may not remove those consequences right away. He may never remove the consequences. But what he will do is he will bring himself into them. And then he is now guiding you through all of these things of which we have laid before us in our own path. And yes, there are times and a lot of times where there are the other people responsible that bring this hurt upon us. But even in that, he teaches us forgiveness. He teaches us how to see him in it and not hang on to the circumstance, but hang on to Jesus in the middle of the circumstance. That's what God wants us to learn. And there's mercy there. There's mercy in judgment and there's mercy in deliverance. And human fleshly nature has not changed since the fall of man. I mean, it, it, what has been will be. And, you know, again, Solomon summed that up. What's been will be again. And why is that? It's because we have a fleshly nature and we repeat history over and over and over again. The thing is, is we want what we want when we want it. That's the fleshly nature. And that's the source and the root of sin. Because of the pride that we have within us, we want to get what we want and we want to grab it and, and it's in every commercial today. Get all you can get. It's all about you. You can do this. You can do that. And you really see the exercise companies gearing up right around January, don't you? All these New Year's resolutions everybody made, they'll sell a whole lot more elliptical bikes and, and, and all this stuff, you know, that, that are clothes hangers two weeks later once you get them in the house. Not, people don't stick to things, but they want instant fix. 
And so all the diet pills and all the plans are kicking up around January, more so than they are. They're all year long, but they really gear up the first two weeks of January because they know that's when they're going to grab people's uh, attention. Oh, yeah, that's going to help me meet my resolution. Well, in the fleshly nature, the resolve is no good. You can't maintain it. There's nothing to keep you there. And the next thing you know, you're back in the same cycle, just like Israel. Oh, we resolve to follow you, Jesus, or God. We, we, we resolve to follow you, and, and we're not going to go back into this stuff again. We'll never do that again. So he raises up a judge. He delivers them, and then right back into the same place again. Resolutions don't work. Transformation works, but it has to come through the hand of God, period. We will pursue what we want and what we desire above everything else. And James 1, 13 through 15 says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. And listen to this, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth, birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Now that is as plain and simple as it gets. Our fleshly nature wants it. We desire it. We're tempted by it. We're drawn away by it. And then it conceived in our heart that we have to have it. It becomes sin. And then sin, if we don't repent and let go of it, it brings death. That's the law of sin and death. That's why Jesus came, to deliver us from the law of sin and death. But the law of sin and death only keeps us in bondage if we don't receive Jesus. And we don't walk in Jesus. Otherwise, we're lost in it. And it doesn't matter what culture you come from. It doesn't matter the race. It doesn't matter the ethnicity. It doesn't matter the country. It doesn't matter where you were in the world. It doesn't matter anything about history. What it matters is, is that you have to come within yourself to say that I'm like everybody else. I'm born into sin and I need a redeemer. And Jesus said, here I am. I'm your redeemer and I'm your only redeemer. There is no other door. No other religion. No other way. And this is a hard part because people say, well, these other people, they all believe this. They all are going to hell. If they don't know Jesus, the answer is yes. And I don't like to be so blunt, but it is what it is. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other door. And so if we come and we, we want to coddle these other religions because we feel sorry for them, then you best go and tell them about Jesus. That's the only way to feel sorry for anybody that doesn't know him. Don't accept that they have a door. All religions do not lead to the same place. They all lead to one place except Jesus. Jesus takes you to another place. All the others are going to one place. And the sad thing is when you see these bumper stickers coexist, Take the cross out of it. And they're all coexisting, heading to the same place. But Jesus, Jesus came, and he's delivering us from this law of sin and death. When the fruits of our unrighteousness catch up to us, that's when we want to cry out to God. You ever notice that? You, even, you can even see it 
recently in the football game when the guy got hit and pretty much died on the field. His heart stopped. What happened? Everybody got on their knees and they were praying. Now, I don't know the hearts of these people. I'm not bringing judgment to everybody that was praying. Some of them probably sincerely were seeking God. But some of them were doing it because they didn't know what else to do. How many times have they prayed about their own lives? How many times have they sought God about what's going on with them and the fact that they need to be in the relationship with Jesus? I'm not bringing judgment. I'm just pointing out, I'm just making a statement here that many times people will get on their knees and pray about something in the middle of an emergency. But once that emergency's over, they don't go back. Oh, we want this guy to, oh, don't let him die, don't let him die. Now, some of these people are praying because he's a doggone good player and we need him. I mean, think about it. That's what, oh, man, we got millions of dollars invested in this guy. We can't, Lord, God, heal him. Well, he's doing great, and I praise God for that. I praise God that he's recovering. But the point I'm making here is, is that you see it. When 9-11 hit, everybody went to the churches for a while because fear, fear will drive you to God. But a change of heart is going to keep you there. Circumstances will drive you to God. But when the pressure's off, after God intervenes, after God moves, when the pressure's off, we begin our journey spiraling downward right back into the same pit that he just brought us out of as though it'll be different this time. That's the ultimate lie. We see it in our governments. They're going down the same road that's been tried before. Socialism doesn't work. Communism doesn't work. However, you get leaders in place that only want power and want to control, they're going to bring it right back. And what is their answer to it? Well, they just didn't do it right. We're implementing it in a way where it will work. They're lying to themselves. They don't see history for what it is, and they continue going down the same road. The definition of insanity, and we've all heard it, is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Now, if that's a true statement, then this pattern of sin that Israel and that we have today, we put ourselves through it, it's nothing more than insanity. It's insanity. To walk away from God and go after pagan gods as though it's going to be different than it was the last time. But we see the history, the patterns there. So God continues to show mercy and grace as we continue in this life battling the nature that we're born into. And listen, I'm not making light of how easy it is to go and fall back into that nature. That's what we've always known from infancy on. We've known how to cry out and take care of ourselves. The louder we cry, the more we get. It doesn't work as much as adults, but some people still try it as adults. The louder they cry, the more they get. But the truth is, is that God wants us to grow past the infancy stage. It's time to grow up. It's time to quit acting out in our fleshly nature. It's time that we die to it. We can't change it, but we can die to it. We replace it with a spiritual nature. And that's through Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. And I'm going to read pretty much the rest of this chapter, and then we're going to have some more to talk about, but beginning here with verse 12. 
And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, and went and defeated Israel, and took possession of the city of Palms. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, eighteen years. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Jerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. By him the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud made himself a dagger, it was a double-edged and a cubit in length, and fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man, and when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. He said, Keep silence. And all who attended him went out from him. So Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. Even the hilt went in after the blade. This is how heavy this guy was. When he pushed the blade in, it disappeared pretty much inside him. His entrails came out. Then Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. When he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look, and to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they say he's probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. So they waited till they were embarrassed and still had not opened the doors to the upper room. Therefore they took the key and opened them, and there was their master fallen dead on the floor. But Ehud had escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Sierra. And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains, and he led them. Then he said to them, Follow me. For the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan, leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. Judges chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the, land, into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harasheth, Hagoyim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. For Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. So, again, we see Israel in their downward spiraling pattern. Now, Ehud was raised up after God, in his mercy, heard the outcry of Israel after 18 years. They were in bondage for 18 years. And again, there's nothing special about this man. The only real characteristic that's mentioned is he was left-handed. 
Now that is important when you think about it. It was a tactical advantage for him. For the right-hand men were searched, I'm sure. All men were probably searched when they went in. And most people being right-handed, they would have had the dagger or anything they would have had probably on the other side. He went through, and they didn't see it. They didn't catch it. So he got past the guards, and Moab wouldn't have seen this attack, or the king of Moab wouldn't have seen this attack coming either. What's interesting to me is the confidence. When God raises you up, he gives you the confidence to do what he's called you to do. He didn't hesitate. He had it planned. He made this dagger very specifically and had it placed in a very strategic place. He was prepared to do exactly what he was going in to do. He was the one that was assigned to take the tribute or tax, if you will, to the king. And we don't know for sure, but it appears that none of the men that went with him knew anything about his plan. They all went in. They gave the tribute. He spoke to the king. Everyone left, including those people that came with him. They were already gone. And then he goes in, and he takes out the action that he was raised to do. He sent them away. He killed the king. Now, I don't believe this confidence came within himself. I think many times, even myself, when I think about, you know, when God said it's, you, you plant the church and you, you move forward, there, there's a confidence, but it's not mine. <laughs> I can tell you I'm not very confident doing this. If anything, I feel completely inadequate most of the time doing this. But when God calls you, you go in his confidence. His confidence, his word, his spirit, his guide, his leading, his actions will get the results that he wants to accomplish. So you don't come in and you say, oh, I'm going to do this for God. This is a big mistake. And there are a lot of people that want to bring attention to themselves in some cases, and they'll come out, I've got to do something big for God. I'm going to do this for God. I'm going to do that for God. That's not the attitude that anyone should have. We don't come to do anything for God. We come to Him humbly seeking Him that He pours into us as a willing vessel, and then He accomplishes what He wants to accomplish, and He, he gets the glory, not us. Any glory seekers don't need to be in the kingdom of God because God will not share his glory with anyone. But we see it. And sometimes they're just confused in their zealousness. I think I've shared this story with you before, and Jennifer's not in the room, but she, she went to college with, with the place up it was in North Carolina. I think it was Montreat at that point. She was there. And there was a mountain real close by that the witches had. The witches had a coven on top of this mountain. And this guy decided at, at this college, Christian college, that he was going up and he was, he was going to take on this witch's coven. And he went up. And he came down a lot faster than he went up. They about tore into him. And he was scared because he didn't go because God called him to go. God won't send you anywhere that he's not prepared to deal with with what you're going to deal with when you get there. But when you go on your own, you say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that, you're in danger. And remember the seven men that went out and they were going out preaching and teaching and trying to cast out demons? And the demon said, we know Jesus and we know Paul. We don't have a clue who you are. They took all their clothes off, beat them, and sent them running. 
Take on the battle that God gives you. Don't take on one otherwise. It's not wise. It's not our battles. Every battle that we see, and this, I'll be honest with you, as a pastor of the church, this is one of the hardest, hardest things to deal with. Is when there's problems that you want to fix and you want to help take care of and you want to see things change and you don't have the resources or the ability to do it and so you have to give it to God and say, Lord, I see this, you see this, we're praying over it. I want this deliverance, I want to see results, I want to see this happen in these people's lives. And God says, give it to me, it's going to happen in my timing, not in your timing. You can't fix it, and then you've got to let it go. And how do you do that? I struggle with that. I think that's one of the biggest issues that I've struggled with over these last few years more than anything else, is how to let go of knowing problems that I can't fix. And I'm talking about in people's lives. I'm not talking about my own. I know in my own, I've got to give it over. I can't fix anything. But as a pastor of the church, you want to be able to do these things and you want to help. But it's not always in our place or ability to be able to do it. It doesn't mean that we're being callous. It doesn't mean that our hearts aren't in the right place. What it means is, is that we can't do everything that we see there's a problem in. And here's, a, here's something as a Christian we all have to come to grips with. is just because there's a problem doesn't mean that you're the one to fix it. But if God has given you the resources and given you the ability and given you the heart and he's taking care of it, then you move in that circumstance and you pour into it but you cannot be the savior you have to let jesus and the spirit do the saving we just have to do what he's called us to do there's a challenge there it's a challenge for all of us because our zealousness sometimes gets in the way sometimes we're burden bearers and our heart and our flesh get in the way thinking we're being burdened for god but it's just weighing us down because we haven't let it go to him all things are His, and we have to give all things to Him. Now, I believe, getting back to um, Ehud, he did what God called him to do. God raised him up. I believe the Spirit came upon him as he did Othenial, and he directed this plan, and Ehud was a willing vessel obeying the word of the Lord. And the Apostle Paul understood this when he wrote this in Second Corinthians 4, 6-7. He says, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. The excellence of power is of God. It's not of us. And the minute that we ever take claim to glory or something that we've done to glorify God and, and, and we say, look what God did. No, let's say, God, I thank you for what you did, but you did it. And I don't need to be seen. You know, and I'm not saying this is necessarily a bad thing, but I was watching, there's a commercial from Subaru recently. And if you like Subaru, you're probably a tree hugger. I'm just kidding. I don't know, but. They're good cars, from what I understand. Never own one. But they, they have poured $250 million back into giving back. Wonderful. But why are they tooting their own horn? Why do you have to toot your own horn? If you're willing to give back into a community, then why do you have to come back and say, look what I did into the community? 
is so they can sell more cars. It's greed behind it. The motivation, if you do something and you want to get recognized for doing it, what did Jesus say? Don't let the left hand know what the right hand's doing. Don't go out pouring into this so you can then be raised up and being recognized and getting all these awards and plaques and, and uh, uh, kudos and all these things because of what you've done. And there's, you know, again, I'm not, I'm, when I'm saying these things, I want you to make sure that I'm not trying to bring total criticism. I'm pointing out certain things that I don't agree with. And one of these things is this local radio station, 104 The Fish. They play, God, they play Christian music, hallelujah. I believe most of them, uh, uh, they pray on the air. They do. They, there's some good things going on there. But they came up with this thing that, hey, call us and tell us if you've paid it forward. And I, I don't listen to the station much anymore. I personally, I'm not really into most of the contemporary music out there. I think contemporary Christian music has been, been hijacked by the world scheme of making money. But... There's some good songs, don't get me wrong, and there's some good worship songs. We sing some of them. But the point I'm making is, is they have this time where people are calling in, oh, I just went through Chick-fil-A and paid for the person behind me. I just did this, and I gave this to so-and-so. That's not what we're supposed to do. If God calls you to pay for somebody to do something, do it and move on. And say, bless them, O Lord. Let them receive the blessing. But don't bring me into it because that's just going to taint it all. It's going to make it all about me. That's not what we're supposed to do. It's all about his power. It's all about his calling. It's all about him moving. It's all about him, period. But again, we've gotten it messed up. And particularly, I, I hate to keep picking on this country and the church in this country, but we are the land of plenty. And the land of plenty will mess up a church in a heartbeat. Because they get to thinking about the plenty. And if I do this, I'll get plenty more. And then I can do this. But then they want to tell everybody about it. They're, just, they're not bringing anything good to themselves. And then it becomes about works. That's not what the church is supposed to be. It's never about the vessel. It's never about the vessel. It's all about the power of God flowing through the vessel that matters. Some vessels look better than others. And to some, they look in the mirror and think they look better than others. Some vessels are bigger. Some are smaller. Some by themselves wonder why God would even choose them. <laughs> Lord, I'm just, I'm broken. I, I can't do anything. And he said, you're right. That's why I chose you. You can't do anything. And if we try to patch ourselves together, we're going to leak. Whatever we pour into our own broken vessel will leak. And it will be ugly and messy. But when God takes a broken vessel and he puts it together in the way he wants to, the only leaks are the leaks of the Holy Spirit that he wants to leak out on everywhere we go. But it's really not a leak at all. It's poured out. It's poured out. Because we're to be in that place to where we're a willing vessel, empty of ourselves, so we can be full of him. And wherever we go, he's pouring out upon others. Again, not about us. It's all about him. If you look through biblical history, God looks at the heart. 
He doesn't look at the appearance. We see that very plainly with David. He was the ruddy shepherd boy that didn't even get brought in. His dad and them said, no, we ain't bringing him in. He certainly can't be the one. And so they prayed them all down. And Samuel's like, ah, oh, this one, nope, not that one. Oh, this one, no. You got any more? <laughs> you got any more kids anywhere? He said, yeah, well, we got this one, but surely not. And they bring him in. That's the one. God looked at the heart, not at the man. And since God's doing the work, and hear me on this, the vessel is, for the most part, irrelevant. Man, I don't want to be irrelevant. Well, your vessel is irrelevant. You as a person are irrelevant in what God wants to do. He wants to do what he wants to do through whoever he chooses to do it. All he wants us to be is to say, yes, Lord. That's it. That's all he wants from us. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. Now let me just stop there for a second. If he's, if he's bringing the foolish things to the world to shame the wise, then we must be foolish. To the world we are foolish. That's what he's saying. I'm bringing the foolishness to the world. They don't see it as wisdom because they can't see it. They're wrapped up into themselves. All they can think about is how prideful they are and what they can do and, and all of these things. I'm bringing those who show no sign of any of that and bringing that to the table, and they're the ones that are called. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. Again, you can't steal his glory. He won't allow it. And that's why he, bring me, he brought somebody like me. I mean, I look in the mirror. <laughs> I don't understand why, but I say, Lord, you said yes, I say yes. If you say go, I'll say I'll go. If you say stop, I want to stop. I don't want to be in the way. I don't want to be in any way a place where I'm saying it's about me or I can do this or I can do that because I can do nothing without Christ Jesus. It's always about him. Now briefly, we look at Shamgar. He's the one raised up after Ehud. And he's briefly mentioned. Just a, just a quick pass. And we don't have much information on him, but we do notice the weapon that he used. It was an ox goad. An ox goad is a wooden stick, basically, approximately eight feet long, and it's fitted with an iron spike or on the end uh, to point. And what it did, it was to spur the oxen. It was to spur them to go in the way they wanted them to go. And notice they said that, and if you go back into the King James Version, you know, when, when Jesus met or met Paul or Saul at the time on the road, why are you kicking against the goads? Basically, he was using that as a reference because Paul was kicking against what God was prodding him to do. And he was kicking against it. Well, let me tell you something. You kick against a sharp, sharp object, it's going to poke. It's going to hurt. You're going to quit doing it. That's what these things were for. 
the one thing about God, well, basically we see first off that he killed 600 men with a stick. <laughs> so that's pretty good. But it was all God's glory. It wasn't his. And again, he's not even, that's, that's all that's really mentioned about him. And he doesn't allow, God doesn't allow the vessels to get the glory for his work. Now, Samson is the only judge that we're going to see who walked in arrogance and thought he was more important than he was. We'll get to that in chapter 13, I believe, but most of you know that story. It didn't end for him well, did it? Because he walked in pride and lust, even though God had called him before he was born to do what he called him to do. He used him because he told his mother, I'm going to. You're going to have a son, and this is what he's going to do. He's not allowed to shave his head, no wine, none of this. Well, he butted against all of the things that, that his mother told him that God said he wasn't supposed to do. He did. God still used him, don't get me wrong, used him mightily. Used him at the end of his life, but there was that season where he was completely punished, physically blinded. His eyes were put out, and he was out there performing as a circus act. But his hair grew back. God used him in a mighty way at the end. But he was also humbled at the end. Didn't end well for him because of his pride. But he's about the only judge you'll see that happening. And today, I believe there are many vessels that God is using to accomplish his plan. And this is another thing, too. It just actually just came into my mind here. We need to think about this. I believe it was, a, it was Elijah when he fled after after uh, uh, the woman, Je uh, Jezebel, you know, said, I'm going to have your head, he took off and hid in the cave. Now, I don't quite understand that story either. When you really think about it, he just killed 400 prophets of Baal, and then this woman scared him to death. But he took off, and he's in the cave, and he said, I'm the only one left. And what did God say? No, I've reserved over 7,000 that you don't even know about. It's important that we understand that. Many times when you're actually doing what God's called you to do, you feel alone. You feel like you're the only one that's saying the message. You feel like you're the only one that's teaching what you feel like needs to be taught or that God told you to teach. And, and sometimes that's a lonely place because you want to, as I even told you guys a couple of weeks ago, I'd like to have another message. <laughs> but God said, this is a message I've given you. This is the one you're going to teach. This is the one you're going to preach. And yeah, sometimes I feel alone. I feel like, and not, not among you all, because I really understand where your hearts are, and I appreciate that, and we have communication, we pray, and we talk. But when it comes to looking at the, the church in the United States as a whole, sometimes I feel alone. And I see local places here. They're not bad people. They're not bad churches, but they're not taking stands that they said they would take. We had a... a situation here which you all we talked about it I guess it was a couple of years ago now by now it's probably at least a year and a half ago where um, the city was wanting to pass the bill or pass a law that they could have open container alcohol walking up and down the streets of course they were going to confine it to a certain area that area has been expanded which we knew it would but I went down there to the city council meeting and spoke against it and several people did but there were several pastors that and, and behind the scenes, this is wrong. We need to go down there. I'm going to be there. And, and actually, one of them particular, I'm not going to tell you who it was, and I'm going to tell you the church. But he was the one that initiated, hey, we all need to go down there. He didn't show up. And word on the street is that his board or 
whoever behind the scenes, the people, said, you don't want to get involved in this. That's going, that, that'll cause you problems here in the church. You don't want to get involved in that. So he cowered and didn't show up. So why? Why is that the case? It's the case because when you're doing what God tells you to do, you've got to make a choice and stand against whatever it is that God's told you to stand against and against the people that come against you to tell you not to do it, even if it's your own people. But crowds matter. And you have it a big church, and you have seats that need to fill, and you need to keep the money coming in. You can't offend. And this is where, again, sometimes you hear things, you know things, you see things, and you say, am I the only one? But I'm not. And I know I'm not. And I'm blessed by knowing that because God has brought other pastors into my life that I know are on the same page. And we talk and we share and we pray together. And then I have you guys who I know are here because God called you here. If he didn't call you here, you don't need to be here. <laughs> it's just that simple. I don't control you. I don't control who comes here. We don't even have membership. If you believe in Jesus and you're sold out for him, you're already a member. It's all one big body. But it's not about us. It's about him. And it's about following through on what he tells us to do. We're all willing vessels. So, the question I leave with you today, are you a willing vessel? Are you willing? And I don't know what that call means. All of us are called to surrender to Jesus Christ. All of us are called to walk in his in relationship with him all of us are called to deny ourselves take up our cross and follow him daily all of us are to submit and to obey his word that's a given across the board but then you take the next step has god called you to or appointed you to do something and you pushed back said no that's not comfortable i don't want to do that and for some, and I'm not criticizing those who are online this morning, so please don't take this as a criticism, but there are some that will stay home and listen online because they don't want to go out. It's easier to roll over than to roll out. Hey, if I took that thing, I wouldn't be here this morning myself. I'd have rolled on over. said, somebody else can handle it today. But think about that. And it's not just that. It's the fact that there's been fear that has been fed into our societies over the last two years. Everybody's scared to death, or was, of COVID, scared of getting sick. Well, it's going to be around from now on, and it's just another version of the flu or a cold, and some people get harder than others. Don't get me wrong. People have died from it, but people have died from the flu. People have died from a bad cold. People die from things every day. We cannot let whatever the the the... the the message from the government or the message from our culture is telling us we can't let that drive who we are. And if we're to come together and worship together, which the Bible says do not forsake the gathering together of the saints, then we're to come. And if it's not here, go somewhere else. Uh, this is not a plea to fill these seats. I would rather have those sitting here that love Jesus in a small number than a big crowd of people and half of them don't know it. And I don't know it because there are too many of them. That's not, I, I, that's not what I want as a pastor. Now, I know, that again, that doesn't flow with the flow either. A lot of the purpose of a church for most people, if you're not growing, you're dying. Well, if you're not growing from the inside out, you're dying. But how many come, it's not, it's not up to me. And it, it should never be up to any pastor about that. 
And it shouldn't be about how, the numbers. It shouldn't be about baptisms. It should be about salvation, but it's not that we try to get as many saved as we can so we can add to our number. Listen, you can't save anybody. I can't save anybody. The Holy Spirit pricks the heart of the, of the person hearing, and if they respond, then they can receive Jesus Christ. Still their choice. But we have to leave it in his hands. It's not my place. So the question again, as a believer, are you a willing vessel? Even if it means getting out of your comfort zone. Whether that means getting out of the bed on a Sunday, or that means speaking to someone in a, in a grocery line, or whether it means that you just on your knees praying when he tells you to pray. Because some are intercessor prayer warriors. That's their call. It doesn't mean that they have to go out and do anything here and there. It means that when you're when he lays a, a burden on you to pray, you pray. When he lays a burden on you to speak, you speak. These are the calls I'm talking about. It doesn't have to be a, a pastor. It doesn't have to be a teacher. It doesn't have to be an evangelist. It doesn't have to be a missionary. Those are all calls as well. And he may raise up some of you for that very purpose. But here's the thing. Don't be afraid of whatever the call is. Because if it's him giving it to you, he will align you with your desire to do it. He's not going to make you or he's not going to give you something that you absolutely hate. Now, initially he might. Let me just <laughs> Initially, you still got to adapt to the fact, I don't want to go to Africa as a missionary. I don't want to do this. I don't think God says, but I'm calling you to, so therefore... I'm giving you this desire. And it won't leave you. It won't leave you. It'll nag at you until you say yes. If you're a believing person, a believing in Jesus Christ person, and you've received him, and he puts something on your heart, you can't shake it. You can try, but you can't. Ask Jonah. He tried. Wound up. And the whale or fish, some people won't argue that point. I don't care what it was. And all I know was he was threw up in vomit on the beach because of his rebellion. But he then followed through. So the point I'm making here is that we need to come to the place in our own lives because we're the church. And if we want to be effective in this culture that we live in, we've got to be willing vessels. You've got to say yes when he says go. You've got to say yes when he says stop. You've got to say yes when he says move. You've got to do what he calls you to do. And I'll close with Isaiah 6, 7 through 8. And he touched my mouth. with This is a hot burning coal that, 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 that we see uh, uh, Isaiah speaking of. He said, he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. That's all he's looking for. The here am I's. He's looking for those who say yes when he says go. He's looking for those who say yes when their flesh says no. Because we're not in bondage to the flesh anymore. And I can tell you this, it may not be an easy road. It may not be an easy journey. It may not be an easy call. But you're not going in your strength. You're going in His power. And in His might. And we stand in Him, not in ourselves. And He will accomplish it. Again, you're going to face battles. 
But you're going to face battles no matter where you're at. We're in a sinful world, a fallen world. You can't be a true believing Christian in this world and not face it every single day. Whether it's in the news, whether it's in the people you know, people you work with, family, wherever it is, you're going to face difficulty. And that difficulty is going to be turning into persecution sooner than later. But the difficulty is you can either go hide in a cave as a Christian, like Elijah did, but God wouldn't let him stay there. He showed him what he needed to show him. He brought him where he needed to bring him, and he sent him on. But that's not the place that he's called you to. We're not to hide away. You can't hide from this world. And people, people have tried to, to live in this place of, uh, of complete hidden. They've, they've closed their bank accounts. They've done this. They've done that. They're completely off the grid. No, they're not. I promise you, somebody knows where you're at. And they will find you, particularly if you've got a hoard of food somewhere, and all the food's gone, oh, you'll be found. It won't be the government coming after you then. It'll be everybody that don't have any food. You can't protect yourself from what's coming. You can't protect yourself from this world. But what we can do is we can submit to God and say, Yes, Lord, I choose you. I choose to be a willing vessel. Whatever that means, it may be hard, but I would rather go down the road in a difficult road with you than to live over here and try to things do things on my own because that's going to end horribly. And then I'm looking at the long term. Where do we get in the long term? There is no way we can even measure or compare the, li the life that we live in this tent on this earth to eternity. It's literally not even seen on a blip. It's that small when you're talking about eternity. Can we not submit to God for 70, 80, 90 years? Most of us didn't accept Jesus when we were young. So 50, 60 years, 70 years, whatever it might be. Can we not come to that place where we surrender to him for that short little brief, brief bit of time and spend eternity with him? Or do we say, this is all there is. I've got to get it right here. I've got to be here, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do that. That's not a willing vessel. It's all about submission and walking in obedience. And that is the hardest thing that people struggle with because they still want to hang on to fixing it themselves. Or they want to be angry with God because they don't like the way he's done things. Well, he's big enough to take your anger, but it doesn't change the fact that he's big, bigger than anything we can conceive and we need to submit to him be a willing vessel that's what he's called you to be so father